on chapter four out of five, so we're most of the way through. And I think this letter is very different from the other letters that there are in the New Testament. Most of the letters in the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul, um, whereas this one is written by James, the younger brother of Jesus. I don't always feel I need to necessarily qualify it by saying he's the younger brother of Jesus, because obviously um, if he was the older brother of Jesus, that would make the whole theology of the virgin birth even more confusing. But he is the younger brother of Jesus. Jesus didn't have an older brother. Um, and I always feel with James, it's, it's probably this James. There are a few other contestants for James as who it could be, but it's probably this James. And I always feel he had a slightly, slightly tough gig to follow, really. I, I grew up with an older brother, and I know what it's like. You kind of go through life, and you always think, oh, I can see what he's doing. I'd, I'd like to achieve that. I'd like to kind of try and compete in this area or in that area. And you're always aspiring to be like your older brother. And I just imagine, you know, James coming home from school and Mary meeting saying, oh, James, how's your day at school? And James going, oh, really good. I got, I got 18 out of 19 on my, or 18 out of 20 on my spelling test. You know, did really well. Mary going, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a day of celebration for the whole family. You've got 18 out of 20 on your spelling test. Jesus rose, the PE teacher from the dead. What a wonderful day. How, how, how well you've both done. And poor, poor James is feeling right great. But so who, who knows what it was like growing up with Jesus as an older brother. Um, but it's quite different letter because it's written by James. And the other thing that makes it different is it's not written to a specific church, seemingly. Most of, I think all of Paul's letters were written to a particular church. So the church, you know, the book of Romans is his letter to the church in Rome. Um, the Ephesians is his church, uh, book to the church in Ephesus. Whereas um, James here writes to uh, basically the 12 tribes or Jewish Christians scattered across or amongst the nation. So it's kind of a broad message to lots of different churches and lots of different people. It's a very practical letter. It really gets into the kind of nitty-gritty about what it means to be um, a Christian, to live a Christian life, to have a Christian faith, to be part of a church community. It really wrestles with these very, very practical issues. Um, and, you know, James clearly believes that what we what we believe is connected to how we behave. So if you want to examine your faith, we should examine the way that we live our lives. Many of Paul's letters have got long sections of quite weighty theology where it kind of tackles all these deep theological issues. James is very practical, very different looking, looking and examining the lives that we lead. There's no reference to death in James's, gospel, in James's letter, um, nothing about resurrection. He, only, he doesn't talk about the divine sonship of Jesus at all. He only actually mentions Jesus twice. It's much more focused on the lives that we lead in the life of um, Christians in the church. One question is, how would the original audience for this letter, when James wrote this letter, how would have people kind of come into contact with this message? And probably this letter would have been read, uh, read out aloud in services. So people would have heard it and they would have listened to it and they would have thought about it um, what wouldn't have happened, they wouldn't have all taken a copy home with them, which obviously you can do today, and um, presumably uh, you've got Bibles at home as well, so you can kind of study it verse by verse in detail and detail. When I, the church tradition I grew up in was a very kind of, you know, verse by verse, not so much when I was a child, but kind of beyond that when I was at university, very much a verse by verse kind of, you know, you take a, a passage and that the preacher would preach, and you know, we might be looking at a kind of chapter from James, but the longer they could spend on each verse, the more deep they could go, the better, and quite often the whole 40-minute message, or often it was an hour and maybe 40 minutes, and however long the message was, you know, if you, if you could spend that whole message on one verse, that was a really good message. It was a really deep message because you just kept, kept drilling down and drilling down, and it meant the series often lasted several years, but, you know, that was, that was fine. But, you know, it was, it, that was, and there's definitely a place for that, and there's great books and things you can read that will go into this, this letter of James in huge detail, 
But probably most people who were intended to hear it originally would have listened to the whole letter read out at once or maybe broken up slightly, which is kind of what we're going to do today. I won't read the whole letter, but I'm going to read you the whole of chapter 4 in what is hopefully a, um, you know, a gently modulating voice. So this is the chapter, chapter 4 of James's uh, letter, and it starts with this. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is compassionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be, um, should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticise and judge each other, then you are criticising and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what do you have to judge your neighbour? What right do you have to judge your neighbour? Look here. You who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there for a year, we will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here for a while, then it is gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So that is the fourth chapter of James. And there are so many different issues and messages that we could kind of go into detail and there's all sorts that I'm not going to talk about this morning just because um, we're trying to do the whole chapter in one day so but obviously for yourselves please go away and think about some of those verses more but we're going to look at four particular points that I wanted to flag up for us this morning the first thing that struck me as I read this chapter was that if we take it that this letter isn't written to a specific church it starts with what is a really interesting assumption, that there are quarrels and fights going on in the church. You see, you know, Paul often talked about kind of quarrels and disputes, but he was writing to specific churches where he knew the situation, he would know the individuals involved or the different factions in the church and what they were wrestling over. Here James is writing seemingly a general letter to all the churches and yet starts with a fairly solid assumption that there will be quarrels and disputes in the church. And that is obviously, and you know, sadly in some ways, of, often not uncommon. There are often quarrels and disputes in churches. And in fact, in any community, any meaningful community that comes together, not just you know, gathers together, but is close together, works together, that shares its life together, that has a common purpose, often those communities are places where disputes and quarrels can build up. Now, one of the reasons that James suggests, and this is what I want us to look at first, is he suggests jealousy as a reason for these quarrels and disputes. 
You see, what I put it um, is that jealousy fuels disharmony. So the jealousy that the people feel fuels the disharmony that they experience as a community. This is what he says in verse 2. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. This is what I mean by a practical theology, something we can all relate to. We can all relate to the idea of what it feels like to be jealous of another person. We can hopefully, or quite possibly, relate to what it means to just kind of be scheming in those situations sometimes. Hopefully, not so many of us can relate to the bit about killing other people, but you know, there's, there is that sense that each and every one of us has experienced what it is like to be jealous of another person. And it has always been the case. If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, you've got Adam and Eve, and then they have the two children, Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a hunter. They both brought their offerings to God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and not Cain's. And then, as a result of this, Cain experienced intense jealousy that led him then to murder his brother. So in this first family, just four people, and already there is disputes and kind of quarrels amongst them. And we don't have to go much further through the Bible later on in Genesis until we get to the story of Joseph. And we see Joseph, who's growing up with, as one of 12 brothers, and their father, um, Jacob, loves Joseph more than his other brothers. And he doesn't try to hide this. Instead, he buys him this special coat that kind of marks him out as his favourite. And the brothers are intensely jealous, and that jealousy drives them almost to kill him. And in the end, they... they spare his life, but not out of any sense of mercy, but just because they realise they can make a quick buck by selling him to some traders. So they, you know, they experience this jealousy as well. And you see stories like that repeated all the way through the Bible. Now, you could argue that Joseph's brothers were kind of justified in their jealousy. You know, I mean, Jacob, you know, to love one child more than the other and to, to not hide it and to make a big thing of it was asking for trouble. Of course, they felt jealous of their brothers, Joseph. Um, and their father's affection for him. But I believe one of the lies of jealousy is that our jealousy is justified. You know, so often we might say to ourselves, well, I think I'm more deserving of this promotion, or I'm more deserving of this opportunity, or we look at something that someone else has, and we think, actually, I have more of a right to that than they do. It's not fair. And that may be true, but the truth is justifying jealousy doesn't in any way help us to deal with it. The solution with jealousy in our lives isn't to justify and say it's, it's justifiable. It's actually to wrestle with it in another way. What I've kind of observed in my own life, uh, particularly, is that jealousy always seems to look upstream. You know, what it does is it focuses on what I have, and then it looks, you know, and whether it is, we're talking about possessions or whether we're talking about a status or a job or, a, you know, a career success or relationships, whatever area or aspect of life we're talking about, we, we take stock of where we're at and then we look at those that we perceive to have more or perceive to be in a better situation. And the jealousy focuses on the gap between where I am and where that person is, the gap between us. And jealousy blinds us to looking downstream, to looking behind us, to the people who might look at what we have and feel jealous of that. It focuses on what we don't have rather than what we do have. I wanted us to imagine this morning, if we had a line of 100 people and at one end, one extreme, you've got perhaps someone who literally has nothing. You know, they have no money, they have no way of getting money, no job, no prospects, no qualifications, no family, no friends, no connections, no possessions, nothing at all going from them. 
And they're at this kind of, they're perhaps number one in this line. And at the other lane, end of the line, person 100 has got everything they could possibly want. Huge career success, huge notable acclaim, many, many family, friends, and vast amounts of wealth, everything they could possibly want. Successful in every way. So you've got person one to 100, and in between, the other 98 people are kind of gradations from one to the other. Now, what jealousy does is it turns everybody facing this way, looking towards the person in front of them and saying, I don't have what they have. I want what they have. I want what they have. And in that result, what ends up happening is 99 of those people experience jealousy because 99% of people are looking forward at what they don't have. Now, some of those people have a, a truly difficult situation in life, but many of them have a wonderful life, and yet jealousy still keeps them focusing in the wrong direction. If we can somehow turn ourselves around, look back at the people who have less than us, or the people who are less fortunate than us, or the people uh, behind us in that line, then actually you've got suddenly 99% of people experiencing gratitude, experiencing the blessedness of God in their lives. Jealousy is a powerful thing. There was a, um, a story here about an old man who was teaching his grandson just generally about life. And he said, it's like there's a fight going on inside each and every one of us. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One wolf is evil, he's angry, he's jealous, he's greedy, he's arrogant, resentful. The other wolf is good, he's joy, he's peace, he's generosity, he's gratitude, benevolence. And the same fight is going on inside me, is going inside in you and every other person who ever lived, this fight between these two wolves. And the grandson thinks about this for a bit and then says, so which, which wolf will win? And the grandfather says to him, the one that you feed. And the truth is that there is this wolf, this jealousy wolf inside each and every one of us. But if we feed it, then it grows more powerful. We will never be able to feed it enough to satisfy it. The more we feed it, the more powerful it will grow. And the trouble is that the society that we live in is constantly in different ways feeding that jealousy wolf inside each and every one of us. You know, whether it's things in magazines or on TV, and especially on the internet, we're constantly being bombarded with things that are deliberately designed to sow discontent into our lives. Yeah. And to use all sorts of manners of very subtle and clever technology to recognize what it is, where we feel a small bit of discontent in our lives, and then expand that and try and break that open into much bigger discontent. So, you know, they see something that we might want, that we might have been looking at and searching for and wondering about, and they want to break that open to the point that we buy that thing. And the internet is incredibly clever like that. Sometimes I think it's not quite as clever as it should be, because I don't know if you've experienced that thing where you, you buy something and then it keeps advertising it to you. So, you know, you kind of buy something, you think you've got a good deal, you've spent lots of time researching, trying to find the best price, and then, you know, a few days later, after having bought it, it sends you an advert saying, we should buy this, look, it's this price, you know, that's five pounds cheaper than I paid. And that's, that's really not helpful information at this stage. And I don't, I don't know why, it, it does it with odd things. You know, there's some things you think, you know, if you buy, for example, a shirt, you know, I bought, bought myself a nice shirt, you know, it's justifiable for the internet to think, well, he bought a shirt before, perhaps he buy another nice shirt, do you like this one as well? You know, that, that's justifiable. But for all, it does it for really weird things. A few years ago, we, got, we had to get a new dishwasher. And, you know, spent quite a few days researching it, looking into it, buying this dishwasher, you know, finding the one that's going to fit, energy efficient, blah, blah, blah. So found it, bought it, got a decent price. For weeks after, 
possibly months, I was being bombarded with images of dishwashers. It was as if the internet was trying to convince us to become a two-dishwasher family. You know, I remember when I was at school, we um, once, and this was many years ago, obviously, we wanted a survey where, and one of the questions in the survey was, how many televisions do you have in your house? And it never really struck me before that it was possible to have more than one. We had the room, the lounge that had the television in it, and this idea that people had televisions all over their houses and in bedrooms and in kitchens and all sorts, it just hadn't struck me. I mean, I had been to friends' houses, but somehow this had not really sunk in as the thing that, you know, you had more than one television. And with televisions, it kind of makes sense. I began to think about dishwashers. Well, you know, it is inconvenient sometimes because Joe, my wife, and I, you know, you know, sometimes she's wanting to dishwash certain items. You know, she's wanting to do the crockery. I'm wanting to dishwash different items. You know, perhaps we should get our own dishwashers. You know, perhaps we can even get a small one and mount it in the wall in the bedroom and have the main one in the kitchen. You know, why are they trying to sell me a second dishwasher? I've just bought one and I bought it on the internet, so they must know. So, you know. It's not always as clever as it could be, but anyway, the, the point is, it's pretty clever at working out where I've got areas and patches of discontent in my life and feeding that and trying to make it grow. And we're wrestling with that all the time. It's constantly focused on the more, on the better, on the extra, on the bigger, whatever it is. And the truth is, if we pursue those things and allow ourselves to pursue those things, there will be serious consequences for us. James says this, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, when he says friend of the world, he's not talking about the people of the world. Of course, we should be friends with people in the world. We are called to love them and to reach out to them. And, you know, it is absolutely right that we are friends with people in the world. But what he's talking about here is the world mindset and jealousy and that discontent and always wanting more. That is part of the world mindset, as are some of the other things that we will come up to. And if we pursue those things, then it puts us um, kind of in opposition to God. Nor is James saying that our lives should be miserable. You know, life is wonderful and there is much in it that ought to be enjoyed and it is good and right to enjoy those things. But if enjoyment of life and pursuing that enjoyment of life is our main goal, then ultimately our lives will be unfulfilling. We will end up missing it. You know, the most content people are rarely those people who have the most things. You know, however much we have, we're probably never going to make it to this number 100 spot. So if we don't deal with discontent at its root, then actually we will always be jealous of other people. The antidote to jealousy isn't the more, but actually it's that turning around. What I've put in your notes is this, this is my first point for you to fill in. Replace, or we need to replace jealousy with generosity. You know, generosity is an amazing thing. Sarah's already talked about it this morning, and it starts with a statement that says, I have sufficient, I have enough, in fact, most of us can say, I have plenty, I have more than enough. And again, not, I'm not just talking about material possessions, in all sorts of areas of life saying, I am satisfied with where I am, who I am, what I am, what I have. Let me share what I have with others. You know, if it's true that having more won't make me more happy, then the, the reverse of that is also true. By giving away what I have and having less, that won't make me less happy. We need to be a generous people, not just for the benefit it does to others, which is obviously reason in of itself to do it, but for the, the, the benefit that it does ourselves and our souls. So, replace jealousy with generosity. Point two is this. Uh, James goes on to say in verse 7, humble yourselves before God. And I want to talk about the issue of pride, which again is one of those issues that probably each and every one of us in this room probably every individual in the world at various points 
have wrestled with, the issue of pride. Once heard it described as pride is either thinking too much of ourselves or thinking about ourselves too much. And actually that second one, thinking about ourselves too much and constantly is, I think in some ways more pernicious than the first one. You know, whenever you watch a movie or TV series or read a novel, there is nearly always a central character, a hero of the story. Someone, you know, not a superhero, but someone in the story who is the main central character that everything else revolves around. And the problem is, I believe, that we consider ourselves to be the hero in our own story. You know, if you take a movie like James Bond, you've got James Bond. He is the main character. There's some other major characters in that, you know, there's the whatever the baddie is in this particular movie, the love interest. You know, then there's a few kind of minor characters, people who help him along the way. Um, and then you get the kind of extras, you know, the bit part players, you know, the henchman that kind of gets shot and falls off a wall and never see him. You know, we don't know anything about him. I always, I always remember the Austin Powers movie that were kind of a spoof on James Bond. don't know if there are any fans of Austin Powers in the room, but one of the scenes I always remember loving was there is one of these kind of shootouts in Austin Powers and I think someone falls over and then gets run over by a steamroller. And, you know, in the James Bond film that would happen, he would say something like, well, he's looking a little flat, and then, you know, he's kind of walk off and then it would cut to the next scene. But what happens is it cuts to the next scene and it's his mother sitting at a table with two children and they're just having a nice meal, and then there's a knock on the door, and it's someone from the company basically saying, we're terribly sorry to tell you that your husband, while he was working with us for the day, got run over by a steamroller and he's dead. And then you see this kind of expands, and you see this kind of, you know, these devastated children, this devastated mother, and it starts expanding on this henchman's life. And what, what's interesting about this is the kind of scene is that obviously that's what never happens. We never focus on the minor characters or the bit part players. They're just collateral damage. You know, we want to go back to the hero of the story. But the truth is, if we are the hero of our own story, then, in a sense, we relegate everyone else in our lives to being bit-part players. And some people treat other people in their lives like they are bit-part players. And perhaps in some ways, and in different situations, we have all been guilty of doing that. You know, the truth is that I believe the story is much bigger than we are. You know, we are all bit-part players in his story in the story of the advance of God's kingdom. That is the story that we are all part of, and we play our part. The antidote to pride, which is something we wrestle with, isn't necessarily to think less of ourselves and knock ourselves down. In fact, taking that to the extreme and self-loathing is as ugly and as destructive as pride is. And in many ways, it's not the opposite of pride. It's just another aspect of pride. It's still at its root, thinking and focusing on ourselves too much and ignoring others. You know, we may become the anti-hero of the story, but we're still the central character. Again, the world that we live in, I think, exaggerates this issue and makes it harder to wrestle with. You know, there's so much of the world and there's some positive messages here that say you are special, you are unique. Have your dreams, have your ambitions. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. Just chase it and make sure you take hold of it with everything you've got. That's the kind of messages that we hear. And they, there are definitely some positive messages worth hearing in that. But quickly, you are special. You are unique and turn into you are the center of the universe. Yeah. Everything revolves around you. And even the church can be guilty of this. You know, sometimes churches can focus so much on what is your calling? What is your personal calling? What is your unique giftedness? What is it that you can do that nobody else can do that God is calling on your life? And actually, sometimes that is true and there is a place for that, but sometimes it's a question of saying, not God, what is God uniquely calling you to do, but what is God calling all of us to do? What is, what is there that we can all do, but we need lots of people to do it? Yeah. That's why we're all involved. Yeah. 
You know, service and that kind of servant-heartedness isn't first and foremost about fulfilling myself by finding that unique role that makes me feel important. It's about recognising there is a job to be done and that we can all be involved in doing it in different ways. Now, how do we deal then with pride? James is, I think, particularly strong on this point. I'm going to read you verses 8 to 10 again, just because they really struck me as I read them. This is what he says. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. James's antidote is that we replace pride with repentance. And not just saying sorry and then moving on type repentance. This is serious, significant, weighty repentance. Joy-crushing repentance. Sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. And as I was reading this, I remembered the story in the Old Testament of King David when he sins with Bathsheba. And he sins with Bathsheba and um, then conspires to have her husband killed. And this is kind of, he suddenly realizes what he's done and the sinfulness of his actions. And it talks about the process of repentance that he goes for. And it talks about for seven days, he lies on the ground. He doesn't eat. He doesn't get up. And he just prays constantly for seven days. Prayers of repentance in the process. He writes a few psalms as well. You know, it's productive. But this is serious, serious repentance. And then after seven days, when it's settled and done, he moves on. But it's something that he engages with seriously. And sometimes repentance, we think, oh, we just say sorry. You know, in the Old Testament, you had to kind of go through all sorts of burnt offerings and sacrifice animals. And you had to buy the animals first and then take them somewhere where you could sacrifice and then the cleaning up afterwards. So, you know, it was, it was a serious deal. In the New Testament, we're freed from all of that. But it doesn't mean that repentance should be insignificant or easy. And with this issue of pride, I think we need to at times stop and examine our hearts and repent of the, the times when we have been proud and ask that God would repair our hearts. The third point I want to make is this, uh, starting from verse 11, where James says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. You know, it is so easy for us to be judgmental of others. And this judgmentalism that we can often see in ourselves and in the world, I think there's a connection with pride. Sometimes if we think highly of ourselves, it's natural then for us to look down on other people and judge them in their situation. And I think there's also an interesting connection with being judgmental with the jealousy that we talked about earlier. You know, sometimes it's the people that we're jealous of that we can be most judgmental of. You know, we look at someone that seemingly is successful and has everything and something in us wants to kind of bring them down and judge them for whatever way. And again, the world we live in constantly encourages us to be judgmental. You know, this, this issue about friendship with the world and the world kind of perspective comes up again and again. I think of programs, and obviously they're quite harmless programs, but programs like you know, The Great British Bake Off, there's some fans in the room, but we've watched, you know, we've watched a couple of series. And you know, the, the idea of this series that you watch, and what makes it enjoyable, I think, well, you see the nice cakes and everyone being nice to each other, but it's, it's, it, there is that kind of underlying current of judgment that goes all the way through it. And I, you know, I sit at home as someone that never bakes, is you know, useless. And, you know, I, I recognize, of course, that you know, Cedric, who's the guy who gets knocked out in the first round, you know, there's always a Cedric. And, you know, um, you know, but he, he is an amazing baker. You know, he's incredible. He's not just a better baker than me. He is probably a better baker than anybody I know. 
I don't mean that offensively to anyone in the room that considers himself better than Cedric, but the idea is, you know, even though I have no clue and know nothing about baking and that I can acknowledge on one level that Cedric is amazing, you know, I still feel like I can sit at home going, yeah, well, he wasn't really careful taking that out of the oven, was he? And it was, it was a slightly bland choice of biscuit flavour. So, you know, it, the, the programme encourages us constantly kind of, to, you know, things like The Apprentice are the same, you know, it kind of encourages to judge at people, like, God, God, aren't they stupid? And we ignore the fact that a lot of these people have actually run and set up kind of several businesses already by the age of, you know, 18 and three months or whatever. So, you know, the, the programmes encourage us to be judgmental. Now, obviously, that's fairly flippant, but, you know, there are more sinister things in society. You know, some newspapers, things like the Daily Mail, and it's kind of, I think it's a wall of shame, or is it a sidebar of shame now, where, you know, it's just story after story that just heaps judgment on everybody they can, that comes into their crossfire. And quite often, they heap judgment on one person, and then they heap judgment on another person for heaping judgment on the first person. You know, this terrible thing for everything to do with, you know, what they do in their career, what they look like, what they don't look like, you know, all these different things. And it encourages us constantly to engage in this process of judgmentalism. Occasionally I go onto the Daily Mail website and read kind of articles because I kind of enjoy reading the comments and I feel kind of in some way reassured by how crass and inane some of the comments are. That kind of makes me feel a little bit better and then I realise that I'm being judgmental about how judgmental other people are and I think this, this probably isn't a very healthy thing to be doing but, you know, that, but that is so much part of our society and it is dangerous and negative. And it becomes even more negative when not just focused on public figures or celebrities, but when it becomes focused on people within our circle and people we actually know and judging them. Something we need to be so careful of. I believe often that judgmentalism stems from or flows from not having or sometimes choosing not to have sufficient information. I think the actual job of being a, a, a judge, a legal judge, must be incredibly difficult. You know, even in those situations where you have sufficient evidence to make a decision and to convict someone or not, it must be so difficult. And you must be filled with questions like, well, you know, what is their life experience? What is it that has brought them to the point of committing this crime? You know, what has brought them here? What is their life like? How would I have responded had I had the same hand dealt to me or had I experienced that same set of circumstances? Would I have responded any differently to this person in front of me that I'm now judging? So it must be incredibly difficult because we don't have answers to those questions. And the truth is, as James says, only God has all that information. Only God has the answers to each inflection and each question. And therefore, that is why God alone is the rightful judge. As James says, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do we have to judge your neighbour? So what is the antidote? Well, the antidote I've put down is this, replace judgment with generosity. We're back with generosity, but I guess generosity of a slightly different brand. You see, there's a gap between what we might know about a person and a situation and what we don't know. How do we respond to that gap? Do we assume the best or do we assume the worst? You know, generosity or, or grace is, I believe, about assuming the best. You know, I don't know all the facts. Until I do, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna withhold my judgment or until I do, I'm gonna think the best of this person and believe that they had the best intentions. So replace judgment with generosity. My final point is this, the final section uh, in this fourth chapter deals with the issue of self-reliance. Relying first and foremost upon ourselves rather than others. And I think again as we look at society as a whole, we've become 
more and increasingly individualistic. Everything is focused on us as individuals, what we want, the path we want to follow, what we need, things becoming bespoke, being tailored to our needs and desires. And we are proud to be independent. Independence is one of those things that we equate with strength. If someone is independent, we think of them as a strong person rather than a weak person that relies on others. So we have, on one sense, this sense of wanting to be more um, independent, more individualistic, and being proud of that. But in truth, in so many ways, we are far more dependent on things outside of ourselves than I believe we have ever been before in human history. You know, I'm sure we've all experienced the major levels of anger and inconvenience that might accompany with the internet going down for just a few minutes. You know, we think we're independent and we're kind of in charge of ourselves, and suddenly we can't access this internet, which isn't something we've created ourselves or can in any way control. And yet someone else messes up at the internet factory and it doesn't come through our, our house. And it's like, well, you know, I can't cope with this. I'm reliant on this. I need this. This is what goes on in my life. I, I, you've probably seen various kind of apocalyptic films, you know, kind of dystopian futures where, I don't know, there's been a nuclear war or ecological disaster. And there's just this remnant of humanity trying to survive on the scraps that have been left over after the earth has been ravaged. Happy viewing. Um, here's an audience question. Who in this audience thinks in that scenario, or you know, in any day scenario, they can make fire? Who thinks they know how to make fire? You know, you're in a forest, you need to make a fire for yourself. Who can do it? I've got to tell you, that's a lot less than the first audience. <laughs> Interesting. Right, don't know what that says. Anyway, um, first audience is probably about 25%. That's pushing 10% if we're lucky. So, I mean, I can't make a fire. I mean, I would be hopeless. But it feels fairly important. I mean, I'm not talking here about making a supercomputer. I'm not talking about literally man's first step in development. You know, this is the first thing man ever learned to do, was to make fire. And virtually all of us can't do it. <laughs> virtually all of us rely on other people to be the fire makers in our world. Yeah, I mean, that is crazy. You know, this, this discovery was made 300,000 plus years ago, and yet most of us can't do it because we are dependent on other people who do that for us. I don't literally mean I've got servants that come into my house and make the fire and go, is that all right for you, sir? Yes, thank you. Can you bring, can you bring my cocoa? But, you know, we rely on everything around us in so many different ways. You know, in that scenario, that kind of post-apocalyptic future, you know, I would be dead within a matter of minutes. You know, certainly I would have frozen to death long before I could have whittled a fire out of bits of dry wood. But, you know, we are hopelessly dependent on the world, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing at all. But at the same time, admitting that we are in any way dependent is seen as weakness. And we don't want to admit that we're dependent, that we don't know that we are inadequate in and of ourselves. That's not the, the front that we want to present. I'm a teacher, and occasionally I come across things where I think, oh, what, I wonder what, the, you know, what I should do in this particular situation, what the school protocol is, or what, you know, what ought to be the system in place. And you know, I think I should probably ask someone or send an email. Um, and I start writing the email, and I think, well, the problem is I've been, a, I've been a teacher at this school for five years. I really feel I ought to know the, the answer to this question by now. It's going to be a bit embarrassing after five years to ask this question. And sometimes, you know, embarrassment wins over, and I think, just forget it, it'll be all right. But, you know, you, there's, that, there's that sense that you actually to, to admit your weakness, to admit that you don't know something or how to deal with a particular situation, you know, feels like a weakness that we don't want to talk about. Now, faith is all about not independence, but dependence. It's about putting our full weight on something. People often talk about, maybe pejoratively, about faith being a crutch for weak people. And I think that's true. I think it is, but the truth is, we all need a crutch. 
know, and everybody has different crutches because in various different ways, we are all weak. We all have you know, difficult things in our lives, pain and brokenness or things that we're inadequate in or things that we can't do, things that we can't handle by ourselves. And actually the first step of faith is recognizing and admitting that we are weak. And then saying, well, what am I going to lean on? There's all sorts of things I could lean on, all sorts of crutches I could use. I could use wealth, I could use security, I could use you know, all sorts of different things, pursuing success, pursuing this, pursuing that. But actually, what better crutch is there to lean on in moments where we recognize our own inadequacy and weakness than leaning on the author of the universe and our creator, God in heaven? Now, I'm not saying we should never look to ourselves. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look to become more resilient and we shouldn't look to develop and extend ourselves. Of course, we should. But I believe something fundamental in us should look to replace that sense of self-reliance with trust, with that desire to more and more, as we grow as individuals, to more and more trust in others and trust in God. And of course, trusting others can be hard. Other people will let us down. Or they might not fully let us down, but they'll do things differently from how we'd like them to do it or handle things differently. Trusting God can be really hard because sometimes when we most need to trust God, it feels like he's more intangible or more difficult to feel or express. But you know, the loneliest person isn't the person that was let down by somebody else. The loneliest person was the person that never trusted other people in the first place. No community can truly be a community without deep mutual trust. You can bring together a group of people, but if it's a group of self-sufficient individual people, even if they have a common interest or are in some way like-minded, until they start trusting and relying on each other, they are not a true community. There's the beautiful picture that Paul paints in his book to the Corinthians about the church being a body, and that talks about many different things about the church being represented by the body, the body of Christ. And it talks about giftedness and the fact that the hand you know, is different from the foot and that's fine and that the eye is different from the ear. But it's also, I think, first and foremost, a picture about our interconnectedness and our interdependence upon one, one another. That we are not a whole load of you know, separate limbs that are unconnected, that we are connected to each other deeply and we rely upon each other. And that's a beautiful picture about what it is to trust in the church, to trust in each other, and to trust in God. Just as we close and as the musicians come out, I would like to encourage you, um, every week after this service, we run the discovery track. And the discovery track is something that kind of is there to help people, of course, over a few weeks to find out more about this church. And actually, if you've never done the discovery track, I really encourage you to do it. Maybe this week, or perhaps organise to go next week. And find out more about this church. Find out more what it means to be part of it. Because as, as we find out about it, we can then truly put our trust in it. You know, if we don't know about it, we can only kind of be so connected with it. But as we find out about it and we know what it is, we can put our trust in it. We can know what the church is, who we are, what we believe, what we are aiming to build together. At that point, we can properly connect to it. So if you've never done that course, I would encourage you to do it. In a few weeks' time, I think at the end of the month, there's a new Alpha course starting. If you've never done the Alpha course, it's a course that looks about the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did for us, the, the basic central tenets of the Christian faith. And it's only when we learn those things and we know those things that we can then increasingly put our trust in him and say, actually, that's a saviour that I want to put my trust in. So if you've never done the Alpha course, again, when the information comes out about the end of the month, come along, find out more about it. Find out that as we learn about who he is, 
will build our ability to put our trust in him.